Hello, and welcome to Risk Chats with a Firm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, Tal and I will be speaking with Bob Westbrooks. He's from the PBGC OIG. He is, he is the OIG. And uh, we'll be talking about their unique approach to risk management, ERM, both the OIG program itself as well as how the IG has uh, worked with the rest of the agency to make recommendations and uh, kind of provide an interesting take on uh, how IG and, and uh, agency management can work together to really focus on risk management. So without further ado, let's go to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. So today we have with us the Inspector General from the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Did I get that right, Bob? You, you got it right. Okay, I always get that one messed up. Um, and also our co-host today is Tal. Hello, Tal. Good morning on a good chilly December. That's right. Okay, well today we want to talk about um, PBGC's, IG's, a unique, I would say sort of a unique approach to ERM uh, at, at your agency. So why don't we just start off a little bit about yourself, Bob, your background, and why you're interested in this topic. So I was appointed back in May uh, 2015, appointed to be the IG uh, at PBGC. Uh, I'm one of the uh, uh, rarities in the community in that I, I grew up in the community. So I started out at the bottom and I uh, actually cycled through all of the uh job discipline. So I started out as, uh, I was, I'm a lawyer by training. I started out as a criminal investigator, spent most of my time as an investigator. Um, then uh, tr transferred into a, a council function. Um, and while I was doing that, I went back and earned my CPA because fraud's all about the money and following the paper trails and I have a strong interest in auditing. And so uh, after bouncing around to a couple of different agencies, large and small, and gaining some experience, I. Um, uh, was uh, ultimately uh, selected to be the deputy IG at Small Business Administration. I was there for a bit, uh, and then before I was appointed to PBGC. Great, yeah, that's a great background for this for sure, right? Law and the and the, and the accounting side. It's rare that you get both of those in the, around here, but yeah. Bob, real quick, can you just give our listeners a, a, a background on the mission and the scope of resources PBGC? Uh, has control over? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we're uh, a very uh, relatively small, little-known federal agency. We're one of, actually one of the largest federal corporations. We have about $120 billion under investment management. We're responsible for um, the retirement security of about 35 million Americans uh, in defined benefit private sector pension plans. Um, and we pay out about uh, $6 billion a year in, uh, in pension benefits. It's on the radar uh, politically and, and f f uh, with our stakeholders because one of our two pension plans uh, is running out of money. Mm -hmm. and, it, and projections are to run out of money by uh, the end of 2025, and there needs to be a legislative solution to this. So if I get this right, the overall mission of the agency is to take over management of failed pensions? Yeah, when pensions become insolvent, we... Uh, single employer plans, we trustee them, we take over their assets, we pay participants up to a federal guarantee amount. And for union plans, when uh, they become insolvent and don't have enough money to pay out benefits, we actually provide money to them in the form of financial assistance and it's right. framed as a loan. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it definitely sounds like somewhere that you'd want an enterprise risk management program, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. There. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I want you to tell us about that. Um, you know, uh, I feel like, you know, like I said, there's a sort of a unique approach in that you guys are very active in this ERM world. Um, you even have your own programs in the IG, but maybe tell us a little bit about what, what your approach has been to ERM at the agency or corporations are. Yeah. So um, the uh, Congress created a, a statutory chief risk officer function in 2012 for PBGC, and it was the result of a couple of things. One was um, PBGC's two insurance programs have been on GAO's high risk list, uh, The first, one of them since 2003. Um, secondly, our office, before I got there, the 2011-12 timeframe, did some pretty impactful audit work with some significant findings highlighting some operational risks involved in two major plans that we took over, United Airlines and National Steel. Mm. And after highlighting these operational risks uh, and the, the nature of our governance structure, Congress decided that, hey, you, you need a chief risk officer to, uh, to surface these risks and to communicate them to the board in addition to having an IG. And so they created this function. Um, I got there in 15 and it still had not been filled. There was an acting director uh, for for a number of years, and for a variety of reasons, they uh, elected not to fill that position. This was a an obvious place for me to start, mm -hmm. and um, and it's one of these things you try as an inspector general. You try to use the tools that you have available to get to persuade management to do what uh, you think is the right thing to do. And there's already a statutory mandate, so an audit recommendation makes absolutely zero sense. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, one of our first orders of business was to um, to do some research in this area, and this was again going back. This was well before a 123 and was enacted in 2016. So we did some research around the community, and clearly there's leaders out there, right? You have IRS, Department of Education, uh, and some other agencies that have you know uh, had you know, robust ERM programs for a number of years. Yeah, early on, right? Yeah, in addition to, um, you know, uh, at the state level, uh, uh, kind of an, uh, uh, a similar organization would be the California Public Pension System right. for yeah, us. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So we did a white paper. We did some research. And we're saying, okay, here's, we wanted to, uh, number one, demystify ERM as a concept. We wanted to remove any barriers or obstacles for management, creating this position by giving them uh, examples of how it's been successful in other agencies um, and uh, structurally what it would look like. Um, and then also to provide to the board what the benefits of ERM would be. So part of what right. we did was, and this is all open source stuff, was getting from CalPERS the reports that they provide to the board quarterly on the on their risks and their their heat maps and, and um and who, risk is the, who is the target of your white papers? What is the audience? The, that's a great question. It, it was really the, it was the board and, and senior management for that. It, this mm -hmm. was a, a way to create public accountability to say, here's the benefit, board, if you um, persuade management, let management know that this is an important mandate that needs to be filled. And so um, now, within two weeks, they did. seems like a, a lot more friendly way to communicate than mm -hmm. uh, management advisory comments or an audit report. Right. I mean, how did you guys... How'd you guys circle around as, as the white paper, as the venue, as an IG tool? So, like I said, a, a recommendation wouldn't be terribly productive. They know that they have to do this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the uh, organizations I spent some time in is the Postal Service Office of Inspector General, which is a very progressive mm -hmm. office. 
Um, and they're one of the the other agency OIGs out there that do white papers because oh, they've okay. got the resources to do this. So there was a model that we had for okay. that. Um, but it was, and you know, looking back at the benefit of almost five years now, uh, this report really is very symbolic to me because it um, it was our really the first public report that I had as IG, and uh, I think it was uh, constructive. It um, had its desired. Uh, uh, mission or desired result in that uh, an acting chief risk officer was named about two weeks after I issued the report to the board after mm -hmm. a three-year time frame and it set the tone for management for really for our journey through ERM is that we we believe our role is to champion this with management and we can be allies we shouldn't be adversaries right. and speaking of that like so you, you got the results of the appointment quickly thereafter but what kind of feedback did the board or senior managers give you did they did they reach out and uh, and give you feedback regarding the white paper format yeah we did we got it was it, it was uh, very favorable feedback in the sense of it's you know where you you're not just telling us something we already know. You actually went out and did research and said, here's how it looks at Department of Ed or IRS, or mm -hmm. here's what Calper is doing. So that was, nobody has time for that. And really right. for us to provide that thought leadership, I thought was was very beneficial. And that was, you said back in 2016 or after that? What, what was that, was, that was 2015 when 15, we did that, yeah. yeah. So uh, have things been stood up now then in a, a risk office and all that? Yeah, so after a, an acting chief risk officer was named, then the next step was to, to select and name a permanent one. And we and we provided some guidance. That was the second thing we did, which there's no public report of, but I'm proud of it. You know, the, the uh, working with the board, next step, right, is create a position description and figure out organizationally where this role should be. And um, there was an initial attempt to um, go a certain direction with the chief risk officer. We've got, it. There's it's clear we've got major financial risks. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be, uh, there's, different skill sets you can look for in a chief risk officer, and they were relying heavily, almost exclusively, on going down an actuarial route, mm -hmm. which hmm. would bypass all of the operational risks that Congress was concerned about yeah. and our own and the financial statement auditors were concerned about. Right. So I prepared a memo uh, for the board, uh, which um, researched private sector, where the CRO function typically is, and what are the skill sets and knowledge that the, and the private sector they're looking for, what are desirable certifications, education experience, that sort of thing. And um, management actually reissued, they canceled the initial um, vacancy announcement, redid the position description, and based upon this research, reposted and ultimately filled the position. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, again, to me, unique, you know, IG's really, you know, you're providing this kind of, you, you, we want to help out with this. You know, you want to be successful, to be successful. Complimentary so, services. Absolutely. It it's is. not just we're here to audit you and get you, you know, like that. I, people think of the IG like that, but this, you're trying to be very collaborative here in a way. We are, but you know, at, uh, at the same token, we maintain our independence and fact and appearance right. at all times. And I guard that very closely because oversight in a small agency is a very intimate business. So we have to sort of exaggerate those That's lines true. of independence. Um, I think, and particularly in the IT security area, management would say we are, we're very hard graders. We're fair, but we're hard, and uh, I don't apologize on behalf of the, our, our the participants for that. So, what are some other uh, the products that you guys have put out there? So, well, there was some other white papers too, other subject matter areas, right? Yeah. So we did another white paper, um, which is a, an area of concern for all financial managers, is improper payments, and for us, improper mm -hmm. payments are you know our, our money going out is is participant payments. 
And uh, most folks that have been in the business for a while know that the, the gaps and deficiencies in the federal uh, death master file. Right. And right. so that was one, and, there, and there's a whole host of reasons for that, but it, that can't be the exclusive tool for management to use to identify right. paying dead people, which from a financial side of it, the, the risks aren't terribly high mm. um, because the guarantee amount, sadly, for our nation's seniors is, is relatively small. It's the re- reputational risk of identifying you've been paying, right. you've been paying right. a dead person for a number of years. Right. So we did, um, after we've, we did some casework in this area and we used some new legislative tools to uh, detect fraud, we used some, our data matching tools. And so we identified a number of deceased participant cases and the result of that you know, it's great to report yep. out and to and to terminate benefits and seek recoupment and to get criminal charges, but we want everybody, we should be learning from that experience and the way to learn from like, what's the lessons learned here? The lessons learned was there are gaps in the death master file. We were able to find these people using these approaches. Here are some red flag indicators of fraud that we urge management to consider moving forward and implement them into their business processes so we can collectively drive down improper payments and fraud involving this program. So that's monitoring as a, a big ERM uh, standard uh, for, for risk. Can you, you mentioned that you applied some data analytics for some new solutions. Can you give us, can you give us a little war story or, uh, or a success story on, your, on, on the new approach that you guys applied? So, um, with the uh, IG Empowerment Act a couple of mm-hmm. years back, Congress created the exception for the Data Matching Act mm-hmm. to give IGs the authority to bump data up against right. other agencies, IG to IG. Um, so we used our data, um, bumped it up against HHS data. Mm-hmm. And the premise was, and we took uh, certain tranches of, of ages because we've got 800,000 people we're paying. So we have to, we wanted to pilot it, see if it was workable. We're assuming that, you know, if somebody's over the age of 100 in active pay status and they haven't had a, a Medicare claim within the last three years, they're either in extraordinarily good health or they're not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so we identified those that were not in no ex- health status were, at all. Right? No health status and uh, those people popped out pretty quickly in the yeah, data. Right. And then uh, we use our additional subpoena power tools then to go to the state vital statistic o- statistics offices, yep. Yep. which the agency doesn't have that and we obtain the death certificates or any other evidence that we need to establish that this person sure. is in fact, we don't want to, we would never want to cut somebody off or delay a payment. Right. If, if it was even a close call, we want to make sure that the proof is absolute on that. So we get the certified death certificate and then we report those back to management. To date, we have, I think it's 178 cases where we've found uh, deceased participants. Um, some of these, you know, a few of them are just lag time with the, with the death master file, but a number of them, for a variety of reasons, it could be a transposed date of birth or SSN. Right. They're not being flagged at the federal level. Mm-hmm. So, and those folks were cash and checks, were they? Yeah, <laughs> some <laughs> family member. Yep, 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 yep. Wow. So, you know, as far as so, it sounds like you guys, you know, have several different products besides just straightforward audit reports and things that you use to kind of spread that risk management culture around. So, how about? I heard about this thing, these risk advisories. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what's a risk advisory? Sure, absolutely. Before, before I do, I mean, I think it is, it's critical to underscore. I mean, we none of these alternative non-traditional IG products that we issue uh, have impacted our audit work. We're still issuing in, uh, audit reports with binding recommendations and driving change. 
Uh, so I think that's critical to underscore. For our risk advisories, though, uh, one of the things, right, management needs timely information to deal with risk. And um, it's easy for us sometimes to say, oh, you got a risk over here without offering some degree of like a suggestion to say, here's how, if we were in your shoes, here's how we would perhaps fix this. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing with operational risks at a relatively low level, fixable things, right, mm -hmm. fixable problems. So we uh, decided to issue risk advisories for some, they would look a lot like a management advisory, but if you look at them closely, tonally, they're different than a management advisory. They're not just pointing out deficiencies. They're really saying, hey, you, you have a risk here. We, we want to point this out to you, and here's a way that you can fix this. It's a non-binding audit recommendation. So what we found, ironically, and or, we're, we're very grateful for this, management has fixed those problems 100% of the time at a much higher degree and response rate than on a binding recommendation because of the collaborative nature. Now, we don't go through the full audit process with them, um, but we do. Um, I will uh, uh, submit drafts to them for uh, technical comments and I'll work with them if they think that another solution is better. Um, we certainly will consider that, but we've most of these are public reports that are on our website. A few of them are not in the IT security area. But um, we've gotten really, really good results on the risk advisories. We've done them regarding authentication for our public website where we've uh, encountered cases of fraud, of identity theft. We've done them on contracting issues for oversight of um, the, our, our contract workforce, which we have a significantly large workforce. Mm -hmm. um, we've done them on procure, other procurement matters, on evaluations of, uh, of uh, bid proposals. We've done a number of them, and, and we get a very quick turnaround, but they're relatively short, much more narrow in scope. Um, but again, unlike a management advisory, which is really sort of uh, often, and they're important from a public policy standpoint, they're critical, and as a community, we have to do them. They're frequently um, intended to sound the alarm. Risk advisory is really not sounding an alarm. It's more like a weather forecast that it might rain, get you, bring your umbrella with you. That's really the tone and the intent of the, the risk advisories. Having set us on the management side of the table, and uh, in, in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, wow, all right, so this is an advisory. I would expect if we don't hit down this line and, and the conditions don't get resolved, then that could turn into something more formal. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's a great incentive yeah. to uh, just make it go away uh, or make sure you get your focus on it and get some action on it early. I think that's uh, that sounds like a great tool. That's exactly um, the conversations that we had early on. Yeah. I said, this is the approach I'm going to take. Understand I can always go back and revisit this and I will revisit this <laughs> yeah. if they're not fixed. And not yeah. in a threatening manner, but in a constructive no, manner. Management knows that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You don't even have to say it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's understood. I understood. Yep, yep. <laughs> So uh, I do want to talk a little bit about audits, um, and maybe this is a broader conversation than just you know the corporation. But you know, I know you're part of the. Are you part of the the SIGI, the Inspector General group? Council? Yeah, yeah. So every IG by statute, okay. all seventy three of us are a member of the council. Then within the council of IGs, uh, we have elections for um, certain committees, standing committees. So. And then if you're a chair of a committee, you're on the executive council. So I'm the chair okay. of the professional development committee okay. and on the executive council for SIGI. Okay. Well, and from that perspective, from, from your IG's office or the other IG's you've seen, you know, how are folks 
auditing ERM programs out there in, in, in the federal government. Is there good guidance now for that, or what, what's the status of that? As a follow-up question, and we were at the Affirm Summit, I think it was two years ago, and mm-hmm. GAO had a session, and they said they were developing guidance that was going to come out and be implemented through the SIGGIES. Are you aware, is that is that coming down the road? Is it right around the corner? Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, we, we, we have an interesting relationship with, with GAO, and we, we coordinate our work with them. Um, we have, though, um, our own guidance that is uh, coming out that, um, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, it's certainly being looked at by GAO, but I, I don't know that it would be accurate to say it's a sort of a joint venture. Right. Mm-hmm. So we've got two things uh, that uh, SIGI has out. Uh, we're very proud that in October we uh, approved um, a practitioner's guide for OIGs to implement ERM, and I can talk about, talk about that in a yeah, little next, bit. Yeah. Within um, IG offices. Within IG offices, because right. we are uh, many agencies, micro-agencies with all the functions of a, a large agency. And so we want, and, and there's the other piece of it as a community, the, the folks that uh, are true believers of ERM, there's this idea of like that will build our expertise in evaluating agency ERM programs and develop that empathy of knowing right. from the management side how to how the the uncertainty oftentimes with managing your own risks. So we developed a, a, a pretty detailed practitioner's guide, and that was led by um, Jessica Southwell and Tamika mm-hmm. Edwards. Uh, Jessica from Department of Labor and Tamika from HHS OIG. Um, what was fascinating about that guide was it was a um, grassroots effort. There was no IG, there was no executive council that commissioned it to say, hmm. develop this. This was at the staff level, ERM, OIG professionals that says, we need this. Right. And they developed it, and we're very thankful that is they that did. Is that a draft or now effective? That is final, it's effective, and it's on our website. In addition to that, we're in the final stages of approving guidance for OIGs to evaluate agencies' ERM programs. And um, that, you know, it will, it, you know, restates a lot of the criteria out there. Um, it expands a little bit on, um, you know, the playbook. Um, and it gives auditors um, the ground rules, if you will. On, but within that, there's tremendous flexibility, as with anything with audits. An IG has to have the independence to scope a job as they see fit sure. within their agency. So there, it's a, it's pretty broad guidance, but at least sets forth the criteria. And that, that's going to come out, I think, in January. Well, speak, yeah, you know, speaking of criteria, it's pretty fundamental to all audits, right? So if there's a law, there's a reg. What if you don't have that best practices, things like that, standards? I mean, what do you guys have for criteria for that's exactly it right yeah. and that's uh it goes back to yellow book uh government auditing standards and uh you know your your highest criteria is going to be a, a you know your firm's most most firm criteria is going to be written standards written law mm-hmm. that sort of thing but best practices can be considered industry best practice so we so, so the rent, cfo and performance improvement council joint erm playbook is that criteria it would be considered criteria. Like yeah. Best practice sort of yeah. sort of standard, maybe something yeah. close to a standard. There's a little but, bit in A11 on ERM. Is that, little bit, be, is that yeah. the soup? Yeah, all of that. All yeah, and it's yeah. and it's you know and where and what is uh, challenging for management sometimes and there's there's new guidance that OMB is working on now that they speci- uh, some folks wanted to specifically designate it as non-criteria, hmm. and we say you really. 
you can't really do that. Say, if it's, say that one more time. They wanted to, uh, some folks originally thought, well, maybe to foster adoption of this, right. we want to specifically put in this that it cannot be used as criteria by auditors. Now, what, do you, what, what is this? Are you talking about the agency's implementation policy, yeah, policy the, at the agency level? Yeah, the, exactly. Oh. This would be, you know, sort of new, new information or guidance to help uh, agencies implement their programs. And folks said, well, if we want to get, and it makes, at one level, it makes sense. The point was, we want to get agencies to adopt this. And so we don't want there, it to come as a cost. So perhaps if we designate it as non, non eligible as audit criteria, folks will use it without fear. Hmm. And mm -hmm. my position on it, and I made it clear in, in, in I mean, that just can't happen, you know. Now, to the degree to which we rely upon it as criteria and in which we use it to create recommendations, that's a different matter. But sure. it, it just make sure I'm understanding when you use it, I make sure yeah. our pronouns yeah. are clear. Yeah. They don't want to use it. You're talking about the agency's own developed implementation of yeah. other external standards. Correct. Here's, here's our guidebook. Here's how we do our registers and uh, you know make our agency profile and, yes. and go through the ERM cycle. Okay. That is the it, yes. All right, so yep. at, at, at places uh, where managers are at, I know the one thing they're interested in is when they have risk registers where they're applying the process and then and then they have the agency process for distilling down the you know the dirty dozen or the or the agency profile of the most severe risks for for senior managers will the risks in registers and the risk management management identifies and profiles will they be subject to audit so this is um ground zero in terms of the conflict between um, management and the oversight community that um, has been the issue since I've been involved in this issue since before A123 was enacted when right. the community was getting together to talk about what A123 should look like. This has been an issue that has um, continued um, for a variety of reasons involving the statutory role and independence of an IG. I don't know that the there's going to be um, as clear a guidance as people want on it. And it fundamentally, it's going to come down to the professional judgment, professional of, judgment of independent right. IGs. But we can't, mm -hmm. we, could, we could never sanction anything where any agency information is firewalled off. And you can't look at that. Um, but, Fair enough. But if you understand, you know, the nature of our work, um, we develop our annual audit plans and we develop our risks and it's really more i think um there's a lot of fear out there but i think at best it's going to be used as cross-checking each other's understanding of risks i don't and know perspectives, and really. perspectives and because one's on the inside and one is the independent less biased on the outside and both of them bring different strengths to the perspective that's absolutely fair observation um but there's very few instances where, uh, am I, and maybe I'm overly optimistic on this. I just, I can just speak to PBGC. We generally know, we share a common understanding of risk. There might be a difference between is that your number two or three, yeah. but we we have a common understanding. There's no risk we're like. I never thought of that because management does this for a living. They know oh, their however, job. However, putting those two side by side and discovering that that is true, or in fact there are some serious perspective yeah. differences ought to lead to a very valuable conversation between senior leaders in the IG. That should, and I think the, the, the healthiest environment is when senior leadership looks at that as that relationship, reporting relationship, 
with their CRO function, with the IG, that they look at that and say, you know what, I need independent audit on X issue. I need right. to know if this is real risk or not. Right, because you know, within management, as people are implementing and as uh, agencies, ERM program gets more mature, in the back of every manager's level, and sometimes probably more at the staff level, and then as it moves up through the mid, it changes, is uh, a perceived reluctance to you know to get very candid and very clear on both the description and, and assessment of risks, thinking that it, it will lead to, yeah, it'll lead to the next IG's uh, action. So I, I think probably like you're talking about, the, two, the senior leaders articulating the value of having it come up clear and then compared to what the IG is, is you know, where that real, where a lot of the real value actually occurs for the senior leaders. Yeah, and you know, I can't, I obviously can't speak for large, highly political cabinet level agencies with a lot of working parts. I can speak mm -hmm. to a small, a yeah. large um, single mission federal corporation we don't have we don't we just don't have that concern so i i want to highlight that is it's it's possible out there that you can work shoulder to shoulder independently at arm's length and candidly share information and it not result in um tremendous pain it results in value uh really the 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 transfer of risk information between the two functions at our agency so i think uh one of the last areas for you here i just why don't you talk a little bit about the ig's erm program i'm just curious to you know get to know a little better what 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 are, what are you all doing there what have you learned from from implementing that so uh we wanted uh to get out in front of this uh and so once uh, in 2016 once a123 was getting firmed up um i wanted as an office to be a leader and lead by example and implement before the guidance even actually came out and so um i'm a small office of 25 people but we have all the functions of uh, of a you know a, a larger agency and it's the exact same concept whether you're doing for 25 or 25,000. And um, we wanted to um, to implement ERM to uh, educate ourselves, and also as the head of the agency, um, I wanted to get my arms around the wrist. Like, what are the things that are keeping me up at night? Mm -hmm. I need to prioritize what's important. What can I deal with today, and what can I put off till tomorrow? So. Um, Prioritization. Prioritization, yeah, yeah. and we just we just did it, and so uh, and we put some, uh, I think, uh, candid and unusual language in our in our risk management framework, and acknowledging that we're at the initial stages, and that this uh, this is uh, unabashedly imprecise and imperfect, but uh, we'll let uh, experience be our guide and go by trial and error and strive to uh, get better every year and that's what we've done so our first year we started out with i think 43 risks across uh, our organization and um, we prioritize and i learned some some great lessons learned through that process which ultimately is going to inform how we scope out an audit of the mm -hmm. agency's program but that led to fascinating conversations because i did that at the same time the agency was doing that so i remember being at a board meeting and the chairman of the board, who's the secretary of labor, said, so tell me about your, your risks, Bob. And I said, well, we've got 43 risks identified. And he asked management, and they said, well, we've got nine risks identified, mm. nine or 10. And he's like, I don't quite understand how that works. <laughs> um, it seems to me there should be a larger number of risks at the agency level. Yeah. Perhaps you need to go back and, and look at this again. And, and that, I believe, caused management to go back and, and give, it a, give it another effort. Um, 43 was was a lot for us um, and so um, and we got it down you know we looked at and we prioritized to our top 10 yeah. one of which right and it's always a challenge and a 
in the IG community at a smaller office is maintaining a really high level of staff competency. So training was one of our highest risks. So not everything comes at a cost. So it's like, what, what, where do I want to spend our time and our, our corporate energy on administrative projects to raise up our, our, our competencies le- level? Mm-hmm. And so we developed a number of steps for our mitigating strategies. And then we just went about implementing that year. And we did it for the top 10. And then year two, it's like, well, this if year one was very staff driven by me. And so year two, it was like, okay, this to be successful and, and, and have continuity, I need to push this down to the next level. So we delegated it to my deputy IG. We, we firmed up our uh, criteria on our um, risk appetite and risk tolerance. Um, and we put some defi- a lot more clear definitions on um, our risks so people that were assessing them knew exactly what we were driving at. Um, and then um, the big thing we learned was that, you know, it really shouldn't be a democratic process. Not everybody has the same perspective in assessing risk. And we learned that. And we also learned oh, a three-point scale doesn't give you a lot of a very dispersed right, right. data. So <laughs> right. I don't know if this is a mathematically or a technical term, but I, I, we figured out I needed a five-point scale to declump the data. Right. Um, yeah. And That's, then we, we targeted our surveys is what we did. Uh, and I hear I have some experience on the, on the democratic. It, democracy is a great way to reach the media. However, risks tend to be a little bit more on the on the extremes. Those are what you're looking for. And by doing a lot of group voting on the severity or probabilities of risk where there's great variance of people's personal yeah. uh, professional knowledge about the specifics of it, it's like you, you only want you want to at least weight much more heavily heavily those people that are that are close to that piece of the process and those, you know, those, those factors. Yeah, really Otherwise, it's like everything tends yeah. to go, if you're on five points scale, everything's a three. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that's exactly. and it kind of dilutes it all out. That's yeah, a, it's an excellent point. And um, so, that, you know, year one, seeing the data and its preliminary nature, we said oh, we, we have to normalize this a little bit and weigh it with uh, managers that are closer to the risk, for example. Right. Um, where the uh, democratic part comes in, and it is very important, uh, you know, we've got a category of risks uh, or human capital risks, and mm-hmm. a lot of the data that informs that risk are FEV scores, and that's cl- clearly an area where everybody, one man, one person, one vote kind of thing, and it's important to know kind of what is the average, but that's just one data element. Other right. risks, we are looking for the outliers. It's a great point. Okay, well, Bob, uh, this is a great risk chat. I really appreciate you joining us today, and uh, I think we could talk for more hours here but i think we'll cut it at 30 minutes <laughs> but uh thanks again for coming in and i appreciate it very much yeah my pleasure thanks, thanks for guys. sharing thank you that's the show thanks for tuning in happy new year happy holidays to everybody this is our first show of the new year plenty more to come of course so tune in firm.org have a little podcast page there if you have any suggestions you know who to ask And until next time, this is Paul Marshall signing off for Risk Chats with a Firm.